the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Valentine Roosters crow at the dawn of Fairyland fondness. And the game that came to stay and regenerate like a hydra head, a nice cuddly hydra head, Dungeons and Dragons turns 40 and quest onward with the help of a couple of healing scrolls, an infusion of gold pieces, and a powerful spell of designer imagination. Plus, part 48 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Happy Valentine's Day, and welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. We hope you have a romantic time planned for Valentine's Day. You know, curled up with your significant other, or a significant romance-filled novel, or one hopes both. Speaking of which, we have an interview with Leaden Universe co-author Sharon Lee, but this time we'll be talking about her new contemporary fantasy novel, Carousel Sun. This is the sequel to Carousel Tides, and is book two in the Archer's Beach series. These books are set in small-town coastal Maine, and they are about the intersection of the world of mainly Celtic mythology with regular life in an engaging resort town. If you want to read a novel set in contemporary times with a great story and an evocative setting, this is one to check out. Before anything else, though, here's the news. Hey, February 15th. On the Bain.com website, the main site, that is, Bain.com, we offer free fiction and nonfiction. This year marks the 40th anniversary of Dungeons & Dragons, the role-playing game that took over popular culture and transformed us all into geeks. Or, depending on how you look at it, opened our imaginations to a new way to experience that SF and fantasy staple, the sense of wonder. I know, I was there in 1975 when it happened to me both the geek turning and the sense of wonder. So, to mark the 40th anniversary of D&D, this month we are debuting an excellent article by my friend Bob Kruger. In addition to being an author and president and CEO of ebook pioneer electricstory.com, Bob has been a content writer and creator in the gaming industry for decades. He's Seattle-based and has worked at Microsoft's EverQuest and the Wizards of the Coast, and lots more. Bob knows all of the designers who have created and recreated Dungeons & Dragons over the years. The still-living ones, that is. Bob interviews people like Jonathan Tweet, Rob Heinsu, Richard Garfield, and Scalf Elias, and gets their thoughts on the role-playing game that took over the planet. Next time on the podcast, we'll have a roundtable discussion with some of those folks here, led by Bob, so be on the lookout for that. Christopher, how do we find this 40th anniversary D&D essay? The article is called Dungeons & Dragons at 40, The Quest for a Game That Breaks All the Rules, and is available on the Bain.com website. If you're listening to this later and want to read the piece, you can. Go to BainEbooks.com and put free nonfiction 2014 into the search field. That will pop up the anthology of nonfiction articles we had on the website for all of 2014. This is an ebook and it's absolutely free. You can read it there, download it, send it to your Kindle, whatever. These ebook anthologies are available for all of our nonfiction and fiction from the website for the past three years, by the way. We've had some good stuff. The nonfiction is just amazing assortment of cool pieces by physicists, biologists, military historians, and space journalists. Oh yeah, it's good stuff. So put in free nonfiction in the search box, and you will get a list of all these free anthologies. But first, check out our in-depth appreciation and exploration, Dungeons & Dragons at 40, at the Bain.com website starting February 15th. Want to welcome Sharon Lee to the podcast. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Tony. And we're joined by Editor Emeritus Hank Davis. Hi, Hank. Hi, Tony. Hi, Sharon. Sharon Lee and her husband, Steve Miller, are the creators of the Lee Aiden Universe science fiction series. 
It's a saga that's been continuing for 25 years, or 26 now, I guess. 26. We have entered the 26th year. Uh, the latest entry there is Trade Secret. Sharon is also the author of other novels, including books in the Archer's Beach series. These books so far include Carousel Tides and now Carousel Sun, out now at booksellers everywhere. The Archer's Beach books are contemporary fantasy. The main character is Kate Archer, who is a part human, part supernatural being, I believe. She tried running away from the supernatural stuff for a while, but that didn't quite work, so she moved back to her hometown and took over the carousel ride at an old-fashioned main amusement park. It's a carousel that has been in her family for generations, and it's a magical gateway to various dimensions. Sharon, what is Jikinap? Jikinap. Jikinap is a couple of things. It is um, the first per- the name of the first person who created the six interconnected worlds that we deal with in the Archer's Beach trilogy. Um, Jikinap is also the general name for what we hear in the changing world um, called magic. And it's a, in Kate's world, it's a material, and you can win it, you can earn it, you can receive it as a gift. Um, You can also lose it if, for instance, you have a magical duel with another magician and they defeat you and drink all your magic. And Jikinap sort of seeks other Jikinap to... Yes, it does. It seeks itself. It, it, uh, Jikinap abhors a vacuum. And if it finds someone who has no Jikinap, it tries to fill that vessel with itself. It sounds... I'm sure it's a completely different concept, but it sounds a little bit like Melanti in some ways from your Leiden universe. Uh. Well, if you get a little more... If you go one step out philosophically, yes, because Melanti can be um, lost... Um, and earned, and give, not not so much given as a gift, but um, certainly lost, and certainly it needs to be earned. Well, one of the cool things about Carousel Sun is the way you seamlessly combine these wonderful details of Maine small town life with a with a mythology of dryads, sea witches, and guardians of various elements. Kate is guardian of the land. What does that mean in the book? What it means in the book is Kate is is top trendy. Um, she is the person responsible for the health of all of the land and everything dependent on the land within the boundaries of Archer's Beach. So if the other smaller trend they have a problem, they, they're supposed to come to her to try to fix it. However, she's been absent for a while, as you mentioned, and, and they don't necessarily trust her as, as um, someone to go to to help them, which is one of the things she needs to overcome. So she's not the guardian of all the land uh, in the world or anything like that. She's the guardian of, of that area. Is that? Oh, the... that, yeah. I wrote a short story called Emancipated Child, which is about the guardian of the beach, the next beach over called, called Surfside. Ah. So she, Kate is just within the boundaries of Archer's Beach. Now, what is, you, you, you use the word trinve. What is that? Trinve. Oh, I knew this in high school. The genius loci, the spirits of the place. Ah, okay. Um, they, a trendvey will typically um, have a very small piece of land or a tree or a rock that that they are metaphysically tied to, um, which is the source of their strength and which which is their duty. They have to protect this particular piece of land. Um, they are we would call them magical. They're kind of they're kind of grubby. They're not um, they're not Tolkien's beautiful elves. They're earth spirits. So they're attached to. They can be attached to trees or swamps or anything. That's right. Then so a dryad would be a trendbay. Yes. Yeah. And Kate's mother is a dryad, isn't she? Is that? No, Kate's mother actually isn't. Her grandmother is. Ah. Um, Kate's mother is the daughter of a dryad and a gentleman from the land of the flowers who, um, whose element in the land of the flowers, they don't do it quite the way we do it here in the changing land. In the land of the flowers, they um, identify with certain elements. 
so this gentleman is a fire Ozali. He draws his magic, his chicken out from fire. And yes, that's a very strange pairing. And there's a story there somewhere. Um, what? Explain these worlds. The changing world is our world. The changing world is our world. What we is, are the list and the least uh-huh. of the six worlds. And the world of flowers, what's that? Uh, the land of the flowers um, is what we would call elf land in, in the... Um, in the epic fantasies. That's the place where we would find the people who are most like Tolkien's high elves. Um, everybody has magic. Everybody uses magic. The whole, their whole existence is about attaining magic, um, enough magic to, and I'm calling it magic rather than chicken app, enough chicken app to protect themselves from being swallowed by someone who has more. So that, that's the whole driving force in the land of the flowers. They're also very proud. One of the things Kate says to Borgen at one point, but he's saying, um, why, why are the people, you know, why are the people from, from Sempeki like this, the land of the flowers? And she says, well, they are because they're from Sempeki and you're not. Um, so they are the, they consider themselves to be the, the nobles of the six worlds. Of all the six worlds. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Borgen. Uh, this is the guy Kate has the hots for. He's the king of the sea, or at least the king of the, the local uh, inlet. Uh, I guess opposites attract. She's the guardian of the land. Kate has almost killed him in the last book. How is that relationship going in Carousel of the Sun? Well, it's going a little slowly Carousel because Sun, um, he's had to recover from being almost killed. Um, and also Kate has some <clears throat> some bad history. Um, which he knows about, and so he's trying to be very slow and very understanding. Um, and while Kate appreciates that, she she also would um, would like things to go a little faster. They have this primal attraction to each other. It's uh, it it's not questionable. They're just uh, they're insanely attracted to each other. Well, the land and the sea. Who can keep yeah. them apart? And it's nice to – she's so down-to-earth and, and sort of practical in every other way, but she she kind of loses it when Borgen's around. <laughs> and she she keeps fighting against it. She does she does know that this isn't rational. Well, good thing he's a, basically a very good guy, at least as far as we know. Well, maybe so. Maybe, maybe he's a little too good, but okay. Um, <laughs> well, let's talk about carousel lore a bit. Um, she Kate runs a carousel. Um, you You work a lot – of the carousel lore uh, and the carnival lore in very nicely in the book. You go into the difficulties of replacing a horse or another beast if you want to want your carousel to stay classy. Can you talk about how a carousel horse comes to be and maybe explain how Kate ends up with a big carousel rooster? Well, a carousel horse comes to be um, by carving it. If, if you want to go back and do it the old way and not make something that's you know made out of fiberglass or something awful like that... Um, and it takes about 400 hours to carve a carousel horse, and that's just carving it. That doesn't have to do with painting it or priming it or, or any of the other things that has to happen to make it finished. Um, people still do that. People do still do that. And if people, um, listeners are interested, there's the SpokaneCarousel.org, and there's a tutorial on how to make your own carousel horse on that site. And it's really interesting. There are also... A couple of carousel trade magazines. There's a merry-go-round-up, which is from the National Carousel Association. That's the member magazine. And then there's this really fascinating thing called the Carousel News and Trader. And you can buy carousel horses. You can buy um, old organs. You there, There's all kinds of um, historical information in here. You can buy whole carousels. Um, there's an 1880s Herschel Spillman steam-operated carousel going to auction on November 16th, it says here. This must be an old one. Um, so that's that's fascinating. I'm a member of the National Carousel Association. Because I'm, Have, do, you, do you go around and try to ride? You know, I would like to. I do go whenever I can. It was one of the bad, the, the sad things when I was in Chattanooga and I had a sprained ankle. I couldn't go see, visit the park a little way away where they had a, a carousel. Um but I try to collect them, yes. I haven't been to Maine very often. Does Maine still have little amusement parks like you describe in uh, in Archer's Beach? Oh, yeah. Um, Archer's Beach is loosely based on a on a real place called Old Richard Beach, Maine. And there is there is a carousel. It is sadly made, the creatures are sadly made out of um, fiberglass. But there is a carousel in the exact location 
where Kate's Carousel is in Archer's Beach. How does um, how do the seasons work up there? I mean, obviously, winter's not a good season to ride a carousel in Maine. No, winter's not a good season. Um, Old Orchard Beach used to, and reflected Archer's Beach, used to have a much longer season because of, of the big pier, the entertainment pier that they had. And big bands would come up from New York and acts would come up. Um, some some would come over from Montreal or Quebec. So it was a big deal, and it... Um, it had a longish season. It started oh April, which which passes for spring here, and went through October. Um, as things have gotten, as the economy has receded, and as the big bands and the big acts stopped coming up here, the season has receded. And right now, it's only twelve weeks long, so it's open from the end of June to the first week in September. But one of the uh, one of the carousel animals on Kate's carousel is a rooster. What is, what is it about that rooster that's that's odd? Well, there are a couple of things about the rooster that's odd. Um, first of all, Kate's carousel was carved by her great 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 uncle a hundred years ago. So the carousel animals are original, and they're not. They're a little out of proportion. Some of them, the, the bear looks a little moth-eaten, but it's it's an old wooden carousel. And in Carousel Tides, one of, she had, sorry, backing up, menage, a menagerie in Carousel Talk is a merry-go-round that has horses and other creatures. And the other creatures can be mythical or they can just be things like bears and lions. Um, Kate's, the official name of Kate's Carousel is the Fantasy Menagerie Merry-Go-Round, which means there are horses and there are mythical creatures on the carousel, like a unicorn and a bat-winged horse. And in during the action in Carousel Tides, the bat-winged horse, it gets lost. It has fangs also. <laughs> yes, it does. It has fangs. fangs. It's quite, you know, I, I keep looking for somebody to carve me a bat-winged horse. Um, but it's quite beautiful in a really yeah. scary kind of a way. Um, but it's gone. And the problem is that means that Kate is down an animal on her ride, and the park requires her to run a, a ride that is whole, or else they'll find her. So she has to scramble to find an animal to replace the batwing horse. And yes, she can have one carved. Yes, she can buy one from the from maybe the Carousel News and News and Trade. But she's really, really short on time. And she's tried to call in favors from people, and she just can't. Time is against her. So she decides against her better judgment that she will go up to the Enterprise. And Enterprise is is main for junkyard. And the Enterprise at Archer's Beach, um, lots of funny things come into the Enterprise at Archer's Beach. If If you walk into the Enterprise not exactly looking for a thing that you have fixed in your mind, you can um, wander for hours and find out that you've bought something that you didn't really want, and now you can't get rid of it. So it's it's a tricky kind of a place. It's run by a chenvey named Artie. Mm-hmm. But Kate has Kate feels that she's in a corner. She has no choice. She has to come up with an animal. So she goes up to the Enterprise, and in her mind, she has fixed. There's this beautiful Herschel rooster. Um which is multicolored and lively and just a beautiful, beautiful animal. And she has him fixed in her bre- in, in her mind as she walks into the door. And Artie looks at her and says, we don't, he ain't got nothing like that in here. What you've got to think of is what's a place like this likely to have? And he tricks her. Mm-hmm. Because what would a place like this like to, likely to have? And what she winds up with is this old and somewhat battered fiberglass rooster. Um, which she buys because she has to, and Artie brings it down and she puts it on the carousel. It's it's great how she has to solve mundane problems and and the magic comes in to solve that because she she has to open up and so she has to go find this thing and uh, they're aware of her her human desperation. Artie is right. He, yeah. Oh, he he knows he's got her over a barrel. Yeah. Um, and there really wasn't anything. She, she has to deal with him, and he knows that. They it's, both know it. It's a freaky-looking rooster. Well, i, I got to tell you, Eric, 
um, Eric Williams, the artist, did a great job on the cover, the rooster on the cover. Um, that's just it's just perfect. When I when I opened up the the art, I, I laughed. I said, "This is great. I love it. I never thought a rooster, but yes." Oh yeah, this is a this is a beautiful cover. Um, is that Borgen? As well as Kate on, do we do we know? I think that must be Vasily. Borgen is an oh, Abenaki Indian. Ah, okay. Vasily is the is is a helper that from Eastern Europe. They that I want to ask you about that too. Is that is that the case that um, Eastern European war workers get um, transported in to work carnival rides? It had been. Um, they stopped doing it. I guess about five years ago. I'm not really sure why, but there there had been. We had people from Ukraine and from Russia and from Poland um, working in working as waiters and and doing um, cleanup work in the motels and helping to run the rides. Yeah, it was really interesting. And they would the the people would come back um, summer after summer. So the the seasons uh, play a part in the in in Carousel Sun, especially Midsummer's Eve, since this takes place. The book takes place in summer when the carousels open. There is a Midsummer's Eve dance. Kate comments that it can be dangerous for those otherwise normal citizens of Archer's Beach uh, that can hear the music. Uh, what is the Midsummer's Eve dance? The Midsummer's Eve dance is the big um, party for all of the townies who can hear the music. Mostly they're Trinday. Um, some of the people in Archer's Beach um, have can see weird things and hear the music, and they're perfectly welcome to come to the party. Um, the reason it's dangerous is, as with ever, every interaction between the mundane and fairyland, um, there's the threshold where the two lifestyles, the two um, lives are not compatible. Yeah. Um, you could... In uh, in the gift of music, Andy talks about the fiddle that they that him and his friend had brought to one of the one of their gigs, and they had forgotten to take care of the fiddle or to watch it close enough, and a guy almost danced himself to death. Yeah, his and in uh, Carousel Sun, uh, Peggy, uh, her feet keep moving, right? <laughs> right, she gets she gets all danced up, as as they call it, because the magic got it the. The music and the magic got into her. Peggy is actually a sighted human. She can see weird things. And she's not completely flipped out about them when she sees them. But she is a normal human. Now, would you go to the Midsummer's Eve? Would dance? I go? Yes. I would go and watch, sure. You would go and watch? Writer, Even... writer, writers watch it. <laughs> Even if you got accidentally uh, taken over by the music? Wouldn't wouldn't writers be more susceptible? And You know, that's interesting. We should test it out. <laughs> well, if I hear about it, I'll let you know. <laughs> And I want to go too. I don't care. Okay. If, I don't care if I end up in Fairyland. Um, so, a very speaking of Peggy, a very strong theme in the book is the friendship between women. There's really a, there's this nice relationship between Kate and the new sideshow alley manager, who's Peggy. Uh, Peggy is tough and tender, down to earth type. What? Why is it important? Was it important to have a strong, normal human in the story? Well, the way I thought about it, as I was writing the book, it was important for Kate to have a friend. And a friend who wasn't, yeah, a friend who wasn't magical, who was who was just a person. Um, Kate doesn't have very many friends. And the friends that she does have tend to be people like, you know, dryads or, you know, her boyfriend lives underneath the sea. Um, it's, and she needs to stay centered for her work as a guardian, as, as guardian and to fit into everyday life in Archer's Beach because she is the interface actually between the weird and the not weird. Um, she needs to stay grounded in what it is that humans do. So yes, it was very important for, for Kate to have a normal yeah. friend. Now you said Peggy was sighted. What does that mean? Some She's a human. Right. Um, it means that she can see weird things. Um, she can see the trendy and one of her one of her things that she has to do when she arrives at the at the sideshow is she has to hire people to run the sideshows. And the guy who had the job ahead of her left these, as far as she's concerned, being a very meticulous person, left her these completely um, miserable notes with names that can't even possibly be names. Selvik. What kind of a name is Selvik? Um, so she says, hey, do you know these people? And Kate says, well, I might know somebody who knows these people. Um, 
But she can deal. Peggy can deal with the transients. She just doesn't look through them. She can she can see them. She can interact with them. She can see a little bit of magic. Mm-hmm. Um, Kate at one point um, feels that she needs to perform a piece of magic, and she says to Peggy, "Avert your eyes." And Peggy's response is, "Up yours." <laughs> the um, the bad guy in the, is back. Uh, Joe Niemeyer Niemeyer. Yes. And he's a rather, he has a rather nice looking little vixen on his arm who is more than she seems. I don't want to give too much away, but can you t- what can you tell us about Ulma? Ulma is from the land of the Flaming Land, which is um, Kastnerith, another one of the six worlds. Um, in Kastnerith, people, people don't use jicanaps like they do in the land of the flowers where they try to absorb it and, and keep it and use it to um to keep their to keep their position in their lives. Um in the in the flaming land um jicanap is just sort of around. It's like air, you breathe it. So people are magical and they have an affinity for fire, but they don't but only the great flames the um, heads of households are taught to actually manipulate magic. So that, that's where Alma's from. And Alma is, is quite beautiful. Are everyone from the land of uh, the world of fire? No, I, I think um, Joan Neymar just lucked out on that. Ah, she's a, uh, she's a flaming ginger, I think. Is it? She is. Yeah. So, um, so assuming Kate makes it through this one alive, uh, what do you have in store for us next? Well, Carousel Seas is coming out in January, and that is the third and last novel in the trilogy. Uh, It's what happens, let's see, at the last of the summer season. It it goes from July through through the end of the season, and a lot of changes are happening. Um, Part of what's going on in Carousel Sun is that the town people have decided that they need to get together and form a community organization and push for a longer season. And because of Kate's returning to Archer's Beach and increasing the luck of the town, basically, by being there and by paying attention to the land, um, the town people have a new a, a new hope for their town. So they've decided that they're going to get proactive. And they've formed this committee. And the committee is starting to actually take fire and work in Carousel Seas. Um, there's also a whole lot of interesting stuff going on that I can't tell you without ruining the end of Carousel Fun. Mm-hmm. What's really what I really like about the book is the way that you work the those human details, like they're forming a committee to to try to save this uh, amusement park in with the, with the magic, and so it it really feels like one could participate in this world just being a human if you could just encounter it somehow. Well, the the thing I was trying to do with with these books is I was trying to get get as close to magic as as I could without it becoming um overwhelming without going into the high elves um where it's magic that can integrate with the mundane and where you're not really sure where the line is so that that was what was fascinating me about these pro- this project as as a three book project yeah. My favorite, I think, my favorite setting in Carousel Sun is is the wood, um, and this is a special place for Kate. And the trees are uh, the trees are interesting. They're not exactly friendly. No, not to everybody. Um, the Dryad's Wood up on Heath Hill. Um, Grand's tree is in the middle of the wood, and it's a great big old. Um, yeah, she's going to remember what it's called now. Tupelo tree is what we call them up here. Black gum. They're called mm-hmm. down down your way, I think. Um, and black gum live a really long time. And Grand's got a big old tree. Grand's probably two or three hundred years old. And the trees that surround Grand's tree are old, and they are um, sentient. The, the wood itself, as a thing, is sentient, and it decides what can go through it or not. And Kate Kate makes allusions to the old stories where. Um, Someone would bumble into the wood and a path would open up for them and they would walk and they would walk and they would fall asleep and they'd be found strangled by vines. Um, the wood really doesn't like strangers. 
It's very mean that way. So Kate's grandfather who's around. Um, what is that relationship? It, it seems a mentor-like relationship in the book. Um, it is in this book. It's a mentor-like relationship. And when Kate was a little girl, Mr. Ignat, as his name is, um, also known as the Ozali Belignatius, um, Mr. Ignat was a little simple, her grand's beau, and um, watched cartoons with her and taught her how to eat blueberry muffins and just mostly protected her and stuff and was... Um, was a safe place for her. She had come from a very, very bad background and had almost died being transported from the land of the flowers to her grandmother's house. And in the events of Carousel Tides, um, Mr. Ignat enters into his full self. And he is now helping Kate learn how to control all of this chicken nap that she's acquired so she doesn't burn herself up. And, And... to ensure that she can have an ethical framework for using her power. She's a little conflicted about him because um, she thought he was somebody that he's not actually. She's a, she's somewhat distrustful of him because he has, in a sense, betrayed her by not telling her. Which he couldn't do, and, you know, it gets really complicated, but she yeah, loves him yeah. anyway. She always has. Yeah. Well, the book is Carousel Sun, book two in the Archer's Beach series by Sharon Lee. It's available now at booksellers everywhere. Thanks so much for joining us, Sharon. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Here's another cut from Gray Reinhardt's excellent album, Truth, Lies, and Make-Believe. Gray is the unsolicited submissions editor here at Bain, and he's also a talented and much-in-demand filker at many East Coast science fiction conventions. This cut and Gray's album is available at Bandcamp, Amazon, and at Gray's website, graymanwrites.com. Here's Gray Reinhardt with Finding Serenity. Every battle has unintended consequences especially when you're on the losing side when you sacrificed your youthful dreams to fight for freedom and you still see the faces of the friends you left behind when you lost your faith because it failed to bring you victory Reconcile the simple facts of loss And you can survive under the eyes of the benevolent dictators Because you've got to breathe free no matter what the cost Yeah, you've got to breathe free no matter what the cost So you find a ship and call a crew and seek your freedom in the flight They just want to control you Every aspect of every mortal life They want your blind obedience And in exchange they offer safety Why don't the citizens see through all their lies? They give thanks on Unification Day And they dare to call you traitor And their reach extends a little farther every Never give up flying if the way ahead is clear. No, you'll never give up flying if the way ahead is clear. You will find the ship and call a crew and seek your freedom in the flight. Keep flying on far as you can throughout the endless night. Keep searching for that glorious place where you can finally be free. 
And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay. Here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's star kingdom of Manticore has entered into a simmering, low-level conflict with the ancient aristocratic Solarian League. The Solarian League is crumbling, and at the edge of its empire, rebellion is brewing. The Solarian Office of Frontier Security is in charge of keeping the peace on the Solarian frontier, the Verge, Brutal tactics and puppet dictatorships are par for the course for the OFS. Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michelle Hinka, Countess Goldpeak, commands the Royal Manticoran Navy forces in the Talbot Quadrant. This is a region allied with the Star Kingdom and on the border of the restive frontier of Solarian space. When Goldpeak receives word that a Sali assault on the Manticoran home system has been utterly destroyed, she decides to take action against the Solarian forces in her sector, and in the process aid the many rebel groups the crumbling edge of empire. With the bulk of her fleet behind her, Hinka arrives in the Myers system, heart of the outermost quadrant of Sali space. The Sali space forces in Myers are caught off guard, but with their engines hot for training exercises, they may have a chance to escape or even inflict major damage, Goldpeak is just as determined to drive the Sollies back once and for all. The climactic battle has been joined, and a new order is beginning to take shape in the Talbot Quadrant, the Verge, and beyond. Here is Part 48 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. Chapter 35 I think we should have another little chat with Vice Commissioner Hongbo, ma'am, Cynthia Lecter said. Not exactly the most enjoyable thing I could imagine doing, Michelle Hankey replied dryly. She reached out a long arm for the coffee carafe and replenished her cup. Then she sat back on her own side of the breakfast table, nursing the cup in both hands, and regarded her chief of staff through the wisp of steam rising from the black liquid. They'd been in the Myers system for over two tea weeks now, and things had been going smoothly enough to make her nervous. In her experience, the calmer and more orderly things seemed, the more likely it was that something was lurking just beneath the surface to leap out and bite one on the posterior. And since Lecter was still wearing the intelligence officer's hat as well as the chief of staff's hat, she was the one responsible for digging under that surface and finding the lurker before it struck. I presume you have a specific reason for that suggestion? Michelle asked after a moment, and Lecter nodded. We're turning up some things I'd like to try on him. 
The chief of staff was a fidgeter, and she picked up her grapefruit spoon, twirling it between the thumb and first two fingers of her right hand while she spoke. I think he could tell us a few things we'd really like to know. I'm sure he could be a fount of information on any number of subjects. Michelle shrugged and took a sip of coffee. He was second in command of an entire protectorate sector. Somebody like that's bound to know where a lot of bodies are buried. I know. Lecter thumped the bowl of the spoon on the white breakfast tablecloth, drumming gently. The thing is, we're picking up some suggestions that he might have what you could call a friendly relationship with manpower and Mesa in general. And? Michelle's eyes narrowed. I know that's hardly surprising, Lecter grimaced. I sometimes think the majority of frontier security officials have friendly relationships with manpower. Hell, ma'am, they've got friendly relationships with every dirty transteller. After all, it's the illegal transtellers, like manpower and the rest of that bunch in Mesa, that pay the best when they manage to put somebody in their pocket. Exactly. So what is it about Hongbo that suggests we should pay special attention to him? Well, with Kowalski helping to point the way, our friends here in Pine Mountain have managed to break into a lot of people's financial records. Specifically, they're well on their way to opening up virtually all of Hongbo's, Verrocchio's, Palgani's, and Casumulis's private little books. And there's some interesting reading in there. No, really, Michelle said dryly, and Lecter chuckled. Saviero Palgani was, or had been at any rate, prior to Tenth Fleet's arrival, the Meyer system manager for Brindlestar Limited of Hirochi. His position in the sector capital meant he'd actually been in charge of all of Brindlestar's operations in the entire Madras sector, which had made him a very big fish indeed. Teofilia Casamulis had fulfilled the same role for Newman and Sons, headquartered in the core system of Eris, and Brindlestar and Newman and Sons had divided most of the Madras sector between themselves as their private possession. Brindlestar controlled effectively the entire sector's interstellar shipping and financial transactions, while Newman and Sons controlled resource extraction and consumer manufacturing and distribution. Palgani and Casumulis were undoubtedly the two wealthiest individuals in the entire Meyer system, but Michelle had to admit they seemed to have been less rapacious than their counterparts in many another protectorate star system. Apparently, they'd at least been enlightened enough to realize that while the sort of slash-and-burn exploitation practiced in other portions of the Verge might return a higher short-term profit, long-term profitability required at least a modicum of local prosperity. Not that that made them any great paragons of virtue, she reminded herself. Jürgen Kowalski, on the other hand, was a local businessman and banker. He'd had to deal with the Transtellers, especially with Brindlestar, but he'd focused more on the more marginal deals, too small to attract Palgani's attention. In some ways, Michelle supposed, Kowalski had followed in Brindlestar's wake, gleaning the Predator's leftovers. Another way to look at it, though, was that he'd provided capital to a host of locally owned entrepreneurships which would have been completely squeezed out by the Transtellers without him. When Prime Minister Montview began constructing a genuine government, he'd needed a finance minister to replace the totally incompetent and totally corrupt crony Palgani had insisted hold that position in the official government. Kowalski had been on his shortlist from the outset, and nothing anyone had turned up in his background had disqualified him. In fact, He'd been a highly popular choice among those same local entrepreneurs, and there'd never been the least suggestion of dishonesty or corruption on his part. Because of his dealings with Palgani and Kasumulis, on the other hand, Kowalski had had a very good idea of where to start when it came to exhuming the Transteller's books. Not the official books, which they'd kept primarily for tax assessment, shareholder earnings calculations, and write-off purposes, but the real books— the ones which detailed every sordid detail of their actual operations. Helen Sanderson, originally the Pine Mountain Police Department's second-ranking officer, had been named to head the new royal police whose jurisdiction spanned the entire star system. 
Her immediate superior had been unavailable for the position, since he'd been under arrest at the time and was probably going to spend the next several tea years as a guest of the Myers penal system. With Kowalski to guide her, and the enthusiastic support of Janice Hanover, a Myers realtor and commercial farmer who'd been strong-armed into taking the position of attorney general, Sanderson had launched an aggressive probe of the entire black economy. Aside from providing a handful of computer texts to assist in the effort, Tenth Fleet had been perfectly happy to stand back and let the locals deal with their own dirty laundry. It was the last thing Michelle wanted to get involved in, yet they'd been sharing their findings with Lecter from the beginning, and Michelle had always realized Sanderson and Kowalski were almost certain to eventually unearth something with implications for her. All right, she said. Give me the quick summary version. You want to hear about Palgani and Kasumulis, or just about Verrocchio and Hongbo? Which do you think I should be hearing about? Lecter pondered for a moment, drumming more loudly with the grapefruit spoon, until Michelle reached across and snatched it out of her hand with a glare. The chief of staff looked at her for a moment, then grinned. Sorry about that, she said. And as to your question, eventually, I think you're going to be very interested in what we've discovered about Palgani and Kasumulis. I know I wouldn't have believed how the hell much money they could siphon off. She shook her head. I mean, we've always known the amounts have to be huge in any protectorate system, but these two... Let's put it this way. Neither of them was ever going to reach Klaus Hauptmann levels, but both of them were conservatively multi-billionaires. And the really neat thing about it is that it looks like a lot of what they squirreled away was illegal even under the letter of Soli law. Everybody knew they were doing it, of course, but it was illegal, and that means Hanover and Sanderson are in a perfect position to seize their ill-gotten gains, completely irrespective of what the Crown ultimately does about nationalizing Brindlestar and Newman and Sons' local assets. The chief of staff's smile was positively seraphic, and Michelle chuckled evilly. You're right. I am going to want to hear all about that eventually, or at least my nasty side is. The best way to deal with someone like those two is to leave them without a pot to piss in. I mean, a little prison time on top of it would be nice, but taking away all their toys is even better. I know. Lecter smiled for a few more moments, but then the smile faded. I know, she repeated. But aside from the fact that it looks like Brindlestar was probably carrying the occasional illicit cargo for manpower and some of the other Mason transtellers. They had a reciprocal agreement with Jessic, for example. What Sanderson and Kowalski have turned up about them so far is less immediately important than what they are finding about Verrocchio and Hongbo, especially Hongbo. You said that already, that Hongbo's a more important player from our perspective than Verrocchio, Michelle observed. I find that a little surprising. Why buy the vice commissioner when you've already bought the commissioner? That surprised me at first, too, Lecter admitted. Then I got to thinking about it. How often have both of us seen someone else being the power behind the throne, especially in a bureaucratic relationship? From the looks of things, Hongbo's made quite a bit of his career on the basis of managing Verrocchio and I don't think he did all of that managing just for his superiors in the Office of Frontier Security, either. Huh? Michelle took another sip of coffee and raised both eyebrows. Ah, Lecter said with a nod. Then she looked at the piece of silverware her admiral had taken away from her. Can I please have my spoon back, ma'am? She said almost plaintively. You know how much better I think when I've got something to do with my hands? Michelle considered her forbiddingly for several moments. You can have it back if you promise not to drum with it, she said after a moment. One tap, though, and... She drew the tip of her left thumb across her throat in a slicing motion and glowered at Lecter. I promise to be good, ma'am. All right, then. Michelle slid the spoon back across the table to her. 
Now continue with your explanation. Lecter recovered the spoon with a broad smile and started twirling it again, but her blue eyes were serious as she tipped back in her chair. Verrocchio's records were easier to break into than Hongbo's, she began. The encryption wasn't as good, and apparently he only had two or three personal passwords that he reused a lot, she grimaced. Hongbo, on the other hand, had top-flight encryption, by civilian solely standards at least, and he was a lot more inventive when it came to generating passwords. We still haven't gotten into some of his files, and at least one entire folder went up in smoke on us. She shook her head. It looks to the computer geeks like he got some high-powered outside help. The kind of help that only makes itself available when you're hiding something it doesn't want found either. And Verrocchio's records didn't have that level of sophistication? Michelle asked thoughtfully. No, they didn't. Despite the fact that Verrocchio was dealing directly with manpower and that he'd been doing it long before the situation with Monica ever blew up in Sir Ivar's face. You'd have thought if Manpower was going to provide technical assistance to one of them, it would have provided it to both of them, wouldn't you? Yes, you would. Unless, of course, one of them was dealing with someone a layer or two up from Manpower, Michelle said slowly. That's what got me interested in Hongbo, Lecter admitted. More interested in him than in Verrocchio, I mean. And when I got interested in him, I put a team on Verrocchio's correspondence files looking specifically for memos generated by Hongbo, or sent by him to Hongbo, for that matter. That must have produced the odd petabyte, Michelle said dryly, considering the bureaucratic morass of the Solarian League's civil services. There were a bunch of them, ma'am, Lecter agreed. I had them filtered by date and also using strings like Monica and Bing or New Tuscany, though. That reduced the overall sample in a hurry. All right, I'm with you so far. Michelle leaned back, sipping coffee, and reached for the last cinnamon bun. There was still a lot of garbage in, garbage out, ma'am, but a pattern emerged. Back before Monica, or rather in the build-up to Monica, Hongbo was consistently pushing Verrocchio to be more proactive even in his official memos. We've turned up a side file of private correspondence as well, and he's even more persistent there. There's no proof he knew everything Manpower and Technodyne were up to, no direct evidence he knew about Norbrandt or Westman, for example. But it's obvious both of them did know about the battle cruisers. Technodan was supplying to Monica. And from their private correspondence, it's equally obvious both of them were scared to death when they saw what happened to those battle cruisers. You wouldn't believe how much time, effort, and bandwidth they spent, Verrocchio especially, on providing to Frontier Security HQ back on Ulterra that whatever happened in Monica, it wasn't their fault. I suspect a few of the official memos they'd exchanged before it all went south on them got fed to the chip shredder at that point, as a matter of fact. But what's even more interesting to me is that Hongbo, who apparently had been carrying water for manpower, at least to judge from the memos he was sending Verrocchio, put the brakes on big time after Monica. The blonde-haired chief of staff shrugged, still twirling her spoon. Nothing too surprising about that, I suppose. But then... Just before Joseph Bing and Sandra Crandall got sent out here, the tone of this correspondence shifts again. All of a sudden, he's subtly encouraging Verrocchio to cooperate with Bing. And if you read the official minutes of the meetings between Verrocchio, Hongbo, and Bing before New Tuscany, and between those two and Crandall before she set off for Spindle, there's a definite subtext. Subtext? Michelle repeated. Yes, ma'am. Lecter nodded. We've both been around enough bureaucrats, civilian and navy alike, to know how it's done. The two of them, Verrocchio's the one taking point, but from my reading, Hongbo was probably the one who was actually steering, double-teamed Bing, 
and probably Crandall into doing exactly what they did. Not only that, they manoeuvred Bing and Crandall into making their decisions against Verrocchio's official recommendations. She paused, and silence hovered for the better part of two minutes. You know any court of law would chuck that straight out the airlock, Michelle said at last, her tone mild. I haven't looked at the memos myself, of course, but from what you've just said, it sounds like Mr. Verrocchio and Mr. Hongbo must be pretty good at the bureaucratic fan dance. I'm inclined to agree, ma'am. Both of them covered themselves pretty well, at least in terms of ever coming right out in any official setting and saying anything someone could nail them for. And given what they did say, if I hadn't already been suspicious about Hongbo for other reasons, I probably would have simply accepted that Verrocchio, as Hongbo's boss, had to be making the decisions. And he clearly was the one making the final decisions, but it's increasingly apparent to me that he was dancing to Hongbo's piping. And there is another thing, too. There is a Mason diplomat, a fairly senior trade attaché by the name of Ottweiler, Valerie Ottweiler, whose name appears on Hongbo's calendar of appointments with an interesting frequency. There's no record of Ottweiler ever having had a private meeting with Verrocchio, but I found over a dozen between him and Hongbo. Lecter paused again, and Michelle considered her expression. You want to go ahead and let that other shoe drop now, Cindy? She inquired. What other shoe? Lecter asked innocently. The one that doesn't have anything to do with memos between Hongbo and Verrocchio. The one you found by following some kind of wild, totally illogical hunch. Michelle snorted. I've known you a long time, you know, and that talent for being creatively erratic is one reason I wanted you for my chief of staff. So spill it. Yes, ma'am. Lecter grinned, but then she sobered. Although, to be fair, it wasn't really following a hunch in this case. I just took all the names I'd come up with and threw them into the filters for all the records we've been breaking into, including the gendarmeries. Oh? Michelle cocked her head. That sounds interesting. Oh, it was, ma'am, it was. Because it would appear Brigadier Usel didn't believe in keeping her nominal superiors fully apprised of her surveillance activities. In fact, she was bugging both Hongbo and Verrocchio. We haven't turned up anything especially incriminating in the official surveillance files on them, not yet, anyway. But we're getting into her more secure files now. The ones she kept for herself, not for the official record. And yesterday evening, my cyber forensics team turned up at least two meetings that never officially happened, Meetings between Verrocchio, Hongbo, Yusil herself, Ottweiler, Volkart Kalokenos, Isrok Levakonich, Aldona Anisimovna, and Isabel Bardasano. And both of which happened here in Myers a couple of tea months before Technodyne offered all those battle cruisers to President Tyler. Michelle straightened abruptly in her chair, her eyes very narrow as those names registered. Volkart Kalokanos was the eldest son of Heinrich Kalokanos, the CEO and majority stockholder of Kalokanos Shipping, one of the largest and most violently anti-Manticoran Solarian shipping houses. The late and not particularly lamented Israk Levakonich had been the Technodyne executive who'd served as that transteller's contact with President Roberto Tyler and the Monacan Navy. Aldona Anisimovna had been the Mason Alignment's contact in New Tuscany before Admiral Bing's disastrous confrontation with the Royal Manticoran Navy. And last but not least, as the piece de résistance, there was Isabel Bartasano, the woman Jack McBride had identified as the second-in-command of all of the Mason Alignment's intelligence operations. "'My God, Cindy,' she said after a moment, her tone considerably milder than she actually felt. Don't you think you could possibly have trotted that last little datum out first? I could have, Lecter agreed. 
but I wanted to lay out how we got from point A to point B, and I especially wanted to lay the groundwork for why I think Hongbo was more fully plugged into the alignment than Verrocchio. I think both of them could probably give us a lot of really valuable information, but I also think Hongbo's going to be the richer vein if we can figure out how to mine him properly. I can see that, Michelle conceded. Of course, there's a part of me that's inclined to just drag the bastard in and sweat it out of him. Somehow, I'm not feeling all warm and gooey about frontier security at the moment. I think I can probably deal quite well with a few little human rights violations where these two scumbags are concerned. Never any of Duchess Harrington's ballroom friends around when you need one, is there, Mum? Lecter said wryly. I have no idea what you're talking about, Michelle said. Besides, if we really needed someone to whistle up a ballroom fanatic to loom threateningly in the background, we could probably ask Ensign Zilwicky to come up with one, assuming we hadn't sent her off to Mobius with Ivars, that is. We could always bring in a fake fanatic, Lecter pointed out. I've done a personnel search, and we've got better than 30 ex-genetic slaves complete with tongue barcodes assigned to the units we've got right here in Myers. I'm sure any one of them, hell, all of them, would be prepared to impersonate a ballroom representative, show our OFS friends their tongues, and suggest it would be a good idea to tell us whatever we want to hear, in the most friendly possible way, of course. Tempting, Cindy, very tempting, Michelle admitted. In fact, that might be something to keep in reserve. Right now, though, I think we should try subtle first. Subtle, ma'am? Lecter repeated, regarding her admiral with a doubtful expression. I have been known to do subtle upon occasion, Michelle told her in quelling tones. Not very often, I'll admit, and it's not my favorite way of getting things done. This isn't really a case that's suitable for shooting them all and letting God sort them out later, though, so I think I can restrain my homicidal inclinations as long as it's in a good cause. Yes, ma'am. Never doubted it, ma'am. I think you'd better let this one go before you get into real trouble, Captain, Michelle said repressively. Lecter grinned at her, and Michelle shook her head. Then she continued. I've gotten pretty accustomed to working with Alfredo and Master Sergeant Cognasso, she pointed out. And it's entirely possible that neither Hongbo nor Verrocchio have heard the reports about furry lie detectors yet. So if you happen to be able to prime me with the data you've pulled out of these hacked files of yours, and if I happened to invite those two estimable gentlemen in for a private chat, just me and my furry little pet Alfredo and possibly a marine or two for security, like Cognasso, we could probably learn a lot. You mean by not confronting him directly? By just asking leading questions and letting Alfredo monitor his responses? Maybe, but probably not. Michelle shook her head. It's not like Alfredo can tell us what he's actually thinking. He can only tell us when he knows a two-leg is lying or telling the truth. I could probably nibble around the edges asking indirect questions, but if I'm really going to get confirmation, I'm going to have to go more directly to the heart of things. What I can do, though, is to let him think he's getting away with lying to me when he's not. I can probably pull a lot out of him that way, a lot more than we'd get voluntarily if he knew we were closing in on him. That's probably true, ma'am, Lecter said. On the other hand, and with all due respect, you're not really a trained interrogator. No, I'm not. And your point is? Do you think it might be better to let someone who is a trained interrogator ask the questions and work with Alfredo? Someone who might pick up on some of the body cues you might miss and use what she picks up to guide her follow-on questions? Michelle considered thoughtfully for a moment then shrugged. You may have a point. In fact, you do have one. But I'm the one who's worked with Alfredo so far, and I'm not sure we've got anyone else in Tenth Fleet who can actually read Treecat's sign, aside from me and Cognasso, at any rate, and I doubt he's a trained interrogator either.
No, that's true enough, Lecter acknowledged. I still think it's a good idea, though, Michelle said. In fact, I think it's an excellent one, and workable, too. How, Mom? Simple. Michelle shrugged again, this time with an evil smile. We bug my cabin. We put in an audiovisual pickup without mentioning it to our guests. We park a trained interrogator in front of the monitors, and we give me a miniature earbug. The interrogator watches their expressions and body language, and if she sees anything, she passes it on to me over the earbug. Meanwhile, I ask the questions, and Alfredo sits on his perch behind my current victim and signs anything he picks up to me. What do you think? Lecter considered her reply. Michelle's suggestion did seem to cover most of the bases, and, possibly more to the point, Lecter knew her admiral. Michelle Hankey was going to do this herself. That was already settled, cast in stone, as far as the Countess of Goldpeak was concerned, so... I'm not certain it's the absolutely best way to go about it, ma'am, but I think it should work. In fact, it should work one hell of a lot better than any conventional interrogation technique I can come up with. And I'd really, really like to be able to find some additional confirmation of this alignment's existence. A solely confirmation, not just something manufactured out of our own Manticorin paranoia. Oh, don't forget the part that's manufactured out of our Machiavellian Manticorin imperialism, either, Michelle said sourly. Still, I take your point, and I agree. And best of all, Lecter's smile was every bit as evil as Michelle's had been. If we do it right, she chuckled. The bastards won't even realize we're onto them until we hand them over for trial. I can hardly wait to see their expressions then. That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 48, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Christopher Chifani, to Gray Reinhardt, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a mighty rooster crow of shock and awe at the rising of the sun over the land of flowers. And a bouquet of thanks from all the Trinvay inhabiting libraries and bookstores everywhere to Sharon Lee, author of Carousel Sun. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. <laughs> <laughs>